We're going to uh, look at John's gospel starting here today, as you can see, with uh, the story of the encounter that uh, Jesus had with this man, uh, Nicodemus. Now, uh, here we see Jesus in his dealings with one of the key religious leaders of his day and informing him of his need for something more than his religious devotion if he would enter God's kingdom. So I've I've entitled the message today, Jesus and the Religious Person. Now, uh, lest you think that that's not so relevant today, because as we hear some people say, oh, you know, religion is fading and they're you know, most people are atheists now and so forth. That's just simply not the reality. Even though uh, the secularists had, had hoped that it would be so uh, by today, uh, th- that, is, that is not even remotely the case. Um, just to give you some interesting statistics in regard to uh, religious belief around the world, There are approximately 2.2 billion people in the world that identify as Christian of some sort. 2.2 billion. uh, 1.7 billion people identify as Muslim. 1.1 billion as Hindu. 500 million as Buddhist, and then another 800 million or so belonging to some uh, lesser known religion, but Judaism would be uh, included in that statistic there. So even though we hear today from our uh, heavily uh, atheistic influenced cultural elite that, uh, you know, there aren't that many religious people in the world. Uh, more, more people are unbelievers and believers and, and things like that. That just simply isn't the case. Only 450 to 500 million people uh, identify as atheist or agnostic. Now, um, some estimates go as high as 1.1 billion irreligious is the way they would identify irreligious people in the world. Uh, So that puts their number at about 15% of the population. Either way, as you see, approximately 85% of the people in the world identify as religious in some way. And now let me just specify, when I say religious, what I'm talking about is uh, people that believe in some sort of God or spiritual reality. They believe in an afterlife and some required moral standard related to their religious belief. So that's what we're talking about. Jesus and the religious person. So 85% of the world's population is religious. What is the message that Jesus has for the religious person? That's really what we're getting at. Now, let me just say a couple of more things. Of course, when we're talking about religion and religious people, we also have to consider the varying degrees of devotion on the one hand 
and the legitimacy of the religion on the other. Not all religious people are equally devoted and not all religions are equally valid. But now here in the case that we read about in John chapter three, we have a man, Nicodemus, who is deeply religious and sincerely devoted and his religion is the right religion. With that being the case, most people would assume that someone like Nicodemus would certainly qualify for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus tells us something different. See, the, the assumption is amongst people that if you just are sincere and you do your best to adhere to whatever your particular religious conviction is, you know, in the end, everything's going to be okay. You're, you're going to make it to heaven. But Jesus shows us something entirely different with his dealings here with this man, Nicodemus. Now, it's important to understand a little bit more uh, clearly who Nicodemus was uh, to, to know just exactly what the, the issue is here. And so let's just look at Nicodemus for a moment. Um, we read about him here. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So the first thing we're told about him is that he is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were an elite group of men who were arguably the most righteous people in the world, not merely in the land of Israel, but in the world from the standpoint of external religious observation. They were beyond meticulous when it came to keeping the, the, the smallest details of the law. Now, when we hear the word Pharisee, any of us who have been Christians for a while or we've read the Bible or we've studied the Bible, we, we oftentimes immediately think of a Pharisee as a, a person who uh, was self-righteous and hypocritical. And although that was true of many of the Pharisees, it was not the case with all of them. And with someone like Nicodemus, you find that, that here you have a man who is a Pharisee who is, who, who's genuine. He's sincere. He's sincere concerning his faith in God. He's seeking to please God. And he's doing so by living a holy life based upon God's requirements revealed in the law. Another Pharisee that would have been similar to this would have been uh, Paul previously known as Saul of Tarsus. And he writes concerning himself that as a Pharisee, he said he was blameless concerning the law. So he was, he was sincere, like Nicodemus was. So we, so we have with Nicodemus, he's, he's a Pharisee. He is sincere. He's, he's deeply committed to trying his best to live according to God's law. Secondly, we're told that he is a ruler of the Jews. Not every Pharisee would be identified as a ruler of the Jews. This means that Nicodemus was a member of the ruling body of the nation. The nation was ruled by a body of 70 men known as the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so he's devout in his religious commitment. 
He is a leader in the nation. And then as you read the story, you remember there maybe, Jesus refers to him at one point as the teacher of Israel. He asked the question. He said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Now, note that he doesn't say, are you a teacher? He says, are you the teacher? And that could mean two things. It could mean that uh, since the Pharisees were sort of identified as the teachers, that he's just referring to him in that sense. Or it could be that Nicodemus had uh, risen above the rest of the Pharisees in his understanding and in his ability to articulate the faith. And so he could have been identified out of the, the hundreds of people who were Pharisees as, as the teacher. So he's the teacher of Israel. But we, we see also in Nicodemus that he's, he's got some admirable qualities. He is a genuinely humble man. Now, that would not be so among many of his contemporaries, but he was genuinely humble. Why do I say that? Because when he approaches Jesus, he refers to Jesus as a rabbi. Now, rabbi was a respected term, and it was generally reserved for those who had studied in the academies and, you know, had had gone through a process and, and become recognized. Nicodemus himself would have been considered a rabbi. Jesus had none of those things, but Nicodemus, in humility, he refers to Jesus as rabbi. He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And so he's humble and he's also teachable. At a certain point, he finally says to Jesus, how can these things be? So he's seeking understanding from Jesus, even though Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. So in Nicodemus, we have the perfect specimen among the religious of the world. And this is what I want us to understand. We have the perfect specimen in Nicodemus. Now, if Nicodemus is the perfect specimen, and he is not uh, able through his righteousness to enter the kingdom, then that means that everybody else is shut out as well. Now, what every religious person, regardless of what their particular religion is, assumes is that acceptance with God or entrance into heaven is based upon their efforts to live up to their religion's standard of righteousness. That's what every religious person uh, assumes. And, and let me again just broaden this out. We're talking about uh, anyone who's religious, whether they identify in some way uh, with the larger understanding of Christianity a larger understanding, meaning not a strictly a biblical one, which there's plenty of that out there. Certainly 2.2 billion people that identify as Christians are not identifying as biblically oriented Christians. Uh, so we're talking about a person like that. We're talking about people who are devoted to Islam, not the Islamist, not the, the murderous type, but just the, the sincere, uh, devout Muslim or the Hindu or the Jewish person, or whatever the case. But the assumption of every person who is committed to whatever their religion might be 
is that acceptance with God or entrance into heaven is based upon their efforts. In this encounter with Jesus, what Nicodemus discovers is that his assumption of works-based acceptance with God is false. That's what Nicodemus learns in his encounter with Jesus, that he has got it wrong. He's the teacher of Israel, and he has got it wrong. Now, as, um, as Nicodemus comes to Jesus here, as we read the account, I want you to notice that Jesus knows that there's a question behind the question. So Nicodemus comes, he comes by night, John notes that, and it could be that because of who he was and because of the uh, reputation that Jesus had among some, that he felt that it was safer to uh, come to Jesus under the cover of night as to not be seen, perhaps. But he comes to Jesus by night, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do except uh, God is with him. And now notice how Jesus answers. He says, unless one is born, again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I say to you. So Jesus recognizes with Nicodemus, there is a question behind his, his question. And the, and the deeper question for Nicodemus is how does one enter the kingdom? kingdom. Now, now think about this for a moment. This is, this guy epitomizes the religious person. He's, he's religious in the best possible sense. He's sincere. He's devoted. He's committed. He's humble. He's all of those things. I mean, he's, he's the kind of person that most people would look at and have that same assumption. Well, of course this guy's going to heaven. I mean, if, if this guy's not going to heaven, then nobody's going to heaven. That's exactly the point. Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, it's obvious that even Nicodemus didn't have the assurance of entrance into the kingdom. This is, this is the question behind the question. This is really going on. He doesn't really know. Even though he is sincere, even though he is devout, even though he is meticulous about his observance of the law, he still doesn't really know whether he is going to make it ultimately into the kingdom. And you know, the truth of the matter is that's where religion leaves us. Religion meaning the idea that we are going to be saved through our efforts. That's always going to leave us short. It's always going to leave us without the assurance of salvation. We can never be certain of salvation if we're approaching things this way because we can never know whether we've been good enough. And even on a day when we might think that we've been good enough, we've still got the next day to deal with. And everything could be reversed in a matter of minutes in some cases, right? If, if anyone here, which I would imagine there are some of you, if anyone has ever tried to live a righteous life in order to be saved, if anyone's ever done that, you know 
the impossibility of ever having assurance of your salvation. There was a season in my life where I tried to do that. And I could never have any confidence. I could never have any assurance because there was never any guarantee that two hours from now, I was still going to be doing as well as I might be doing at this moment. So, you know, there were those brief moments where, you know, you would think, okay, God, just strike me dead right now. Cause I, I think right now I'd probably go to heaven, but if we wait a few more minutes, all of that could change. That, that's the reality, isn't it? So Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need something that you cannot conjure up yourself. You need something to be done for you that you can't do for yourself. Nicodemus said in response, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus uh, he is perplexed at how such a thing is even possible. But you see, the problem is he's thinking in natural terms. Jesus is speaking of things that are spiritual. And so Jesus goes on and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus now makes it clear that he's talking about being born of the Spirit. He's talking about a spiritual birth. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You see, religion is an attempt in the flesh to produce the spirit, which is an impossibility. We need a spiritual birth. Jesus calls it a, a rebirth. We must be born again, born anew. Some people translate it born from above. Nicodemus understood that Jesus was talking about something entirely new, a new birth. But that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So the best I could ever do through religious observation is come up with an external appearance of righteousness, but it doesn't affect me internally. And that's where the problem lies. I am spiritually dead. You are spiritually dead. We all human beings are spiritually dead and the flesh, that which is born of the flesh can only produce in the end, the flesh. So we must have a new birth. Only the spirit can produce in us the life of the spirit. Jesus said, you, you must be born again of, of water and the spirit. Now there's discussion among uh, Bible teachers as to, you know, just what's the difference between the water and the spirit. In the Greek language, you know how this reads in the Greek? It reads like this. Um, Unless one is born of water and wind. Because the, the Greek word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. 
And so in a way, it's almost like Jesus is speaking a little bit uh, metaphorically here, but he makes it clear that he's talking about a spiritual birth. So when we get down to trying to, to understand well, what's the water and what's the, the spirit, uh, you know, we know ultimately what Jesus is referring to is being born of the spirit. And now here's the point with Nicodemus. And it's the point with all of us as well. Just as you did nothing to contribute to your natural birth, you can do nothing in the sense of religiously speaking to contribute to your spiritual birth. See, Jesus is using this picture that is, you know, to put it, frankly, it's just blowing Nicodemus's mind. He's like, what, born again? He's the teacher of Israel, and, and this whole concept is, is somewhat foreign to him. Jesus uses the analogy of birth for two reasons. Number one, because that is what is going to happen. But secondly, to, to show that it's not something that we do for ourselves any more than our own birth was anything that we ourselves had uh, anything to do with. Timothy Keller put it this way. He said, what did you have to do, Jesus is asking, with being born? Did you work hard to earn the privilege of being born? Did it happen due to your skillful planning? Not at all. You don't contribute anything to being born. It is a free gift of life, and so it is with the new birth. Salvation is by grace. There are no moral efforts that can earn or merit it. You must be born again. The, the message, and we can hearken back a, a little bit into the earlier chapters of John's gospel. The message is entrance into God's kingdom can only happen by a supernatural act of God creating a new life in a human being. That's the message of, of true Christianity. That's the message of the gospel. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, how the church ever got this so messed up is, you know, it's it's unfortunate, it's unbelievable, it's understandable because when the church departs from the Bible, then everything just becomes confusing. But if you, if you stick with the scriptures, this is the picture. This is what it says. And we're talking about something here that is a, you become, uh, remember our last message in Galatians, a new creation. It is a, a miracle that God does that no religious devotion, regardless of how sincere a person might be, can ever bring about because that which is of the flesh only produces the flesh. We must be born of the Spirit. Now, here's the question. How does this happen? This is the question Nicodemus is asking. So when he finally gets his head around the fact that this is what... what is needed, this is what is necessary ultimately to enter the kingdom, this new birth. Um, so his question is, well, how? And he asked, do we go a second time into the mother's womb? No, he, he's thinking on uh, 
natural terms there. Jesus clears that up for him. He says he's talking about being born of the Spirit. Okay, but now the question still remains. How is one born of the Spirit then? And the answer to that question is given in verses 14 through 16. And so listen to what Jesus says. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How is one born of the Spirit? First of all, the Son has to be lifted up. The Son of Man has to be lifted up. So in order for this, <coughs> this, this new birth to become a reality, the Son had to be lifted up or had to be given. Now, in John 3.16... As we read there, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. <coughs> I, th I think we oftentimes think of giving, God giving his son as just giving in the sense of Jesus coming into the world, the incarnation. And of course, it includes that. But it's more specifically talking about the giving of, of Christ as a sacrifice for sin. So... <coughs> One is, is born of the Spirit, first of all, through the work of Christ on the cross. Now, Jesus, he does an interesting thing here in pointing Nicodemus back to this event in the history of the people of Israel, this very obscure event. It's recorded for us in the book of Numbers, and, and it's the story of the children of Israel as they're journeying through the wilderness and as they're continuing to rebel against the Lord and complain against God and Moses, there's a point where God allows these serpents to come into the camp and to strike them and to kill them. <coughs> and so Moses goes to the Lord in prayer for the people and God gives him this strange instruction. He says, take and fashion a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and erect it in the middle of the camp and then instruct anyone who is uh, bitten by a serpent, instruct them to look to the bronze serpent on the pole and they will be healed. Now, remember what I said about Nicodemus being a teacher in Israel? Here's something that's quite fascinating. To this day... Uh, the Jewish teachers do not really understand that story. They don't get it. They, they don't understand. Now, what, what is this whole thing of a bronze serpent uh, erected on a pole, people looking at it? It, do, it doesn't make any sense to them. To this very day, it doesn't make any sense. You see, nobody knew that that was a picture of God saving the world through the judgment of sin being publicly displayed and people looking to that, that would be the way that they would be delivered. Now, the serpent, when we even just talk about the serpent in like a biblical 
uh, context, what do you automatically think of? You think of Satan. So the serpent is symbolic of Satan who introduced sin into the world. And the fact that it's a bronze serpent, bronze in the context of the sacrificial system was used in regard to that, that place of um, judgment. So the sacrifices were put on the bronze altar and consumed. So you have the, the connection between the bronze and judgment. And then you have this, this pole where the, the bronze serpent is erected and people are to look to it. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man will be lifted up. See, Jesus tells Nicodemus that that whole incident was about him and what he had come to do. That sin would be judged and publicly displayed on the cross. And all of those who believed that to be true and looked to that, just like the ancient Israelites were delivered from the, the consequences of the, of the deadly bite of the serpent, so we would be delivered from the consequences and the death of sin. And then, for God so loved the world that he gave. So he's basically saying the same thing in both verses. So how, how is this to be? How can this take place? How is it that one is born again? The Son of Man had to be lifted up, which he has been lifted up. But what do we do? Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, this is the way of salvation. The way of salvation is through simple, genuine trust in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. This brings about the new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus was imperative for entrance into the kingdom. You know, today the term born again has... um, well, it's, it's obviously been misunderstood. It's been um, you know, made, made a, caricature, a caricature of. It's, uh, you know, people sort of uh, scoff at the idea. You know, once in a while you'll hear uh, somebody say, oh, oh, yeah, you know, the born agains or that. Oh, yeah, that person got born again. And, and then it's also used sometimes by uh, just, you know, sort of secular people to describe just some sort of a new start in life or whatever. Yeah, yeah now they're born again. They're not you know, doing drugs anymore or something like that. Um, you know, some people have even thought in recent years that born again was, was kind of a new thing. I remember a few years ago, I was traveling on a train from London up to the north of England and I was speaking with a lady and I was, you know, looking to share the gospel with her a little bit. And she says to me, she says, oh, you're not one of those born agains, are you? She says, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't like those born-agains. I said, well, uh, you know, unfortunately, I am one of those born-agains. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I kind of knew what she meant. But, but, but people think like that. And, and I can remember many, many years ago when I was, uh, even before I was married, I was working in a particular place. And um, I, I was reading my Bible there uh, on my break, and somebody was trying to tell me that born again was this recent thing. And believe it or not, they were telling me that that, that guy Chuck Smith, he had, you know, he's the one who came, came up with that idea of being born again. <laughs> somebody actually said that to me. 
And I happened to have my Bible open. I said, well, actually, it did predate Chuck by a few years. Here, let me read to you uh, here in the Gospel of John that is 2,000 years old. Oh, what? Who? Jesus. Jesus said you must be born again. So how are we born again? How is anyone born again? Who has to be born again? Anyone who would enter the kingdom, anyone who would uh, perceive the kingdom must be born again in order to do so. Apart from that, there is no entrance into the kingdom. So religion might give the outward appearance of righteousness, but only personal trust in Christ can give us the new birth that is required for us to enter the kingdom of God. Now, in closing, you know, it is possible that even someone in this room today, it is possible that you have spent your entire life in church involved in religious activity Things like praying and worshiping and studying and fasting and doing good works. You know, it's possible that that you could have spent your entire life in the context of the church doing those things, but yet you've not been born again. It, It is entirely possible. As a matter of fact, there are multitudes of people that that would be the case with them. And as, again, I refer to the 2.2 billion Christians on planet Earth. It's a very small minority of that 2.2 billion that that are the ones who actually have been born again. Because we can easily substitute religious duty and think that that's the way. And, and, you know, again, sadly enough, uh, within the realm of the Christian church, Uh, There's so much confusion. We can understand this in the synagogue. We can understand this in the mosque. We can understand this in the the Buddhist temple. We We can understand that people wouldn't necessarily automatically get the the necessity of being born again but how it can be that in the church people don't get it well that's that's a great tragedy but again as I referred to earlier it's because much of the church for many centuries has disengaged from the word of God and and put in its place the the ideas of men but whether it is a church or a synagogue or a mosque uh, and it's been praying or worshiping or studying or fasting or doing good. None of these things can bring the dead human spirit to life. Only the spirit of God can do that. And that happens through faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So for those who uh, have put their trust in him personally, and received as Jesus instructed Nicodemus that he must do that message of of believing that he died as a sacrifice for our sin upon the cross and rose again from the dead. As, As we believe that, that makes us the children of God and it makes us the heirs of heaven. It gives us eternal life. And nothing less than that can do that for us. 
So we are surrounded, as we saw by the statistics, 85% of the world's population is religious in some way or another. So there are a lot of people all around us who are mistakenly thinking that it's through their best efforts that they will ultimately make it in. And we have the responsibility to let them know the truth that you must be born again. And so may God help us. And like I said, uh, part of the motivation in our series here is to just kind of look at the, the, the great need once again for getting the, the simple gospel out to people so that they can receive and be saved because we all want to see the world change. We all want to see things get better. And, you know, there's only one way that that's going to happen for sure, and that is through the hearts of individuals being changed, and that happens through the new birth. And so, um, again, as we close, you know, if, if you're with us today and you have suddenly realized that maybe you've been religious, but you've never experienced this miracle of the new birth. Today is the day for you to do that. And I want to invite you and and encourage you and exhort you and challenge you not to leave this place today until you receive Christ personally and become born of the Spirit. And maybe also for others of us who we, we've already come there, but perhaps we know people that are in this place. They're, they're very religious. And I mean, we might even know some religious hypocrites, but we, we might know some people that are genuinely, sincerely religious, but they don't, they don't have that personal relationship with God through Christ. May God help us to help them to come to know that and to receive that. So Lord, we pray as we close today that you, Lord, would work in us and through us. Lord, I would just pray today for any person that's with us in the room, outside, wherever they might be, Lord, that, uh, they would see themselves as a religious person, but they do not have the confidence of salvation. They can't say with assurance that they have been born again. Lord, help them today to cross over into the realm of life through putting personal faith and trust in Christ. And Lord, help us who uh, are there and, and who know people who are religious but not there. Help us, Lord, to be those instruments that you might use to bring them into the kingdom. Thank you for the lesson through the life of Nicodemus. And Lord, may we take it to heart and apply it. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.